Good morning, church. Um, it's just so good to be with you here this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, you open them up to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 8. We're going to be continuing our journey through the Sermon of the Mount, and we're going to unpack this passage, this wonderful passage in which God has been using and uh, speaking to us as a church. Um, and I'm just, I'm just amazed at God's glory this morning. He's just, He is great. He is, he is he's magnificent. And the, the wonderful thing that we have, and, and I, mean, I was thinking this week, what, we've had a few weeks off of the Sermon of the Mount. I was thinking, okay, we need to have a bit of a recap. I know we, our brains, we quickly forget. Man, I preach the sermons and I forget the sermons. <laughs> so what about those who listen? So what, what do I want you to come away with? What do I want you to get? Um, as we dive back in right near the end. So there needs to be something that we need to have. And for me, the primary thing in which we need to have and have in our thoughts when we come to the Sermon of the Mount is that we need, to, we need to want Jesus. We need to want Him. That's the, before Jesus even starts, we see that there's a, there's a massive crowd that's around Christ. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. His, his fame and the, the noise of who this Jesus is is spreading around Israel to a point that it's even overflowed into the neighboring country, Syria. And people are coming in to hear Christ, coming in to see him do miracles. They're taking their sick. They're wanting things to be done. Jesus, seeing the massive crowds, what does he do? We've, we've spoken about this. He goes up the mountain. And who follows him? It's the It's the disciples. Those who want Christ. Walking up a mountain is never fun. Unless you're one of those hiking people. I'm not. So walking up is not, a, not something, let's cool, let's go do that. It's only those who desperately want Jesus that follow him. That decide, I want him, there I'm going to go. But what struck me, and what we haven't spoken about in the series so far, is that there's only a few that go up in the beginning. But at the end of the sermon, when Jesus comes down, a great crowd comes down with him. And that is so comforting this morning to know that while some of you might feel like the, the ship has gone, your opportunity has come and gone, there is a point for you that you can join. It's never too late for you to come and follow Christ. There are some that went up, Jesus didn't say, oh, you didn't, you've missed the beginning, so go away. He says, no, no, come. Others gather. More people come. Because the Sermon of the Mount, I know it's just three chapters, and we can read that pretty quickly. But at the very least, it was a whole day. If not, like a conference, a couple of days. And during that, there are others that keep on coming to Jesus. More of them that say, I want them. Or look what they have. I want more of that. There's Jesus. I want him. And so they go up the mountain. They come and join the party. And I want to say that for you this morning. It's never too late for you to come and join Christ. You can always get him. My fear, though, is that if you don't do it now, you're going to let the opportunity go. There is no sweeter moment for those of you who do not know Christ to join him now. There's no sweeter moment for those of you who do know Christ to start to pursue him wholeheartedly than now. Because the reality of sin is this, is that the more we do it, the more it becomes attractive. The more we get involved in it, the more our hearts get hardened. 
And some of you might be thinking, man, I'm, I'm going to leave it off. I'm going to wait until a certain point in my life. I'm In a few years, the situation isn't quite right now for me to do this. I'm enjoying this too much, or, or this needs to change, or, or whatever your circumstance might be. But the reality of the matter is we just keep on putting it off. And the more you do that, and the more you do the things that you want, the more your heart gets hardened. And the less likely it is that you're going to change your mind. Because sin, when it grows, its roots go deeper and deeper and deeper. And it's more difficult for you to remove it out of your life, to let it go. So there's more sweet. There's no greater place that you are in your life than in this moment to receive Christ than now. To pursue him, if you do have him, to pursue him wholeheartedly, to to lay aside the weight and sin like Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2 says, and pursue him to run this race than to do it now. Because the longer you leave it, the less likely it's going to happen We see this on the cross. We see Jesus dying. He's crucified on the cross, and he's not crucified there by himself, is he? There's two thieves. Uh, Luke 23, I think it is, 23 or 24, talks about how there's two thieves that are being crucified near Christ. Men who have done and stolen so much to a point that they deserve to die for it. These aren't nice little uh, just uh, shoplifting kind of guys. They're bad men. And yet the one thief who who sees Christ dying next to him sees the Savior of the world. He sees him in his meekness. He sees him in his poor in spirit. He sees the humility of Christ. He sees the mercy of Christ. He sees the peacekeeping of Christ. He sees all the Beatitudes. He sees that in Christ. They're on the cross. Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He, he's heard about the miracles that Jesus has done. And he sees the Savior of the world dying next to him. And he, in that moment, believes in Christ. And he turns to him and says, remember me when you're in paradise. And that gives us comfort to know that you could be at the end of your life. That you can be right at the end, that it's never too late to follow him. But church, that is not the normal state of how it goes. That is not the norm. But the longer we leave it, the less likely it's going to happen. And we like the other thief on the cross who saw the savior of the world die next to him. He saw the meekness of Christ, the humility of Christ. He saw the pure in spirit of Christ. He saw it all. He saw exactly what the other thief saw. He saw him dying for the sins of the world, his own sins next to him. And yet he does not turn to Christ and say, remember me, but instead he rebukes him. And the reality of the matter is, is that we can leave it too late. Church, my heart for you is that we want Jesus. Because he's everything. Sorry. And there is no sweeter moment for you than to lay your life down to Christ. Now. And then now. And so we see the rest of the Beatitudes, the disciples come to Christ. And we see in verses... Verses, let's read verse 1 to 8. And I will stop and I will break down each verse as we go quickly as we, we need to get to the Beatitudes Day. But I want you to catch up to where, just to remind you where we're at. Uh, verse 1, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain and when he sat down, the disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now this is the foundation for the whole Sermon of the Mount. 
that where we stand before God, that we, we are nothing, we are depraved, we are sinful, we, we bring nothing to the party, he is holy, we fall short. But it's blessed when we realize that because then we realize we need a savior and that is Jesus. And so when we, we know that, when we come to that point that we are always dependent on him, then theirs is the kingdom and we make it into the kingdom. It is ours. As Mark said, we are sons and daughters of God and we inherit from him. We come into his kingdom as ours. The next one is blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And we realize in our state, our sin, we aren't happy with it. We mourn our state. We mourn the fact that we are sinful to a point that it results in action. It's not just this feeling of feeling guilty. It is one that results in repentance and change. But the comfort, the blessing for this is that we will be comforted by God. That who we are in Christ, that we are, we are sons and daughters, as Mark said this morning. We, are, we inherit, we are holy and righteous in Christ. There is there's this comfort that we have that we will not stay the same because we have Jesus. Blessed are those who are meek. For they shall inherit the earth. This is a realization that as a result from being poor in spirit, man, we bring nothing. That there's nothing of us that is good. There's nothing worth defending in us. And so when people come and revile us, when people persecute us, when people mock us, when people come and do things against us, it's, there's nothing in us to defend. And so we are meek, but yet at the same time we are bold. We are bold against injustices. We do not see things are going wrong and we stand aside, but we are bold for them. We are bold for the gospel. We stand up for Christ. We want to see his kingdom go. We want to see him kingdom grow. That's what we want. And as a result, we will inherit the earth. So though while they might take all that is ours away, we will inherit everything for in Christ it is ours. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Now this is the pinnacle of it all. Mark spoke a couple of weeks ago, and this is the mountaintop. This is ultimately everything, that we will be satisfied in God. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. We, we want it, and there's a satisfaction that comes in it. It's a hungry and thirsting of more of God that we are willing to lay aside the sins that we have. This is everything. And then blessed uh, are the merciful. Mark spoke about this a few weeks ago. For they shall receive mercy. Now, mercy is the main primary um, beatitude in which it's built off. And I hope you can follow me here, is that it is built off poor in spirit. So at, we, at the top of the mountain peak, the first one down, the mountain peak is the first one, is built on the first one going up. Does that make sense? So merciful, being merciful, the foundation that we need to be merciful is that we need to understand our own poverty. When we understand our own poverty, we understand our own state before God, when others act wrongly against us, we understand what is in them is in us. We don't stand from a place of self-righteousness going, they, they are awful, evil people, because we realize we too are that. And as a result, we have been forgiven much, and therefore we can forgive. Does that make sense? So it builds off poor in spirit. The next one is that blessed are the pure in hearts, for they shall see God. And this is what we're going to speak about this morning. And this one boards of blessed are those who mourn. Because we need to mourn the state of our hearts in order for them to become pure hearts. Do you see that? We need to mourn the fact that we are sinful in order for the fact that we can make them pure. In order for that to happen. Because if we don't, 
man, we're going to stay in the same place. And then so next week's one, blessed are the uh, peacemakers, uh, for they shall be called sons of God. Well, that one builds off blessed are the meek, but next week we'll, we'll tackle that. And so what we, we're going to be doing this morning is, as we look at our, our beatitude, blessed are those who are pure in heart, for, for they will see God. What we're going to do is that we are going to break this up into certain words. Let's unpack those words, and hopefully at the end we're going to be able to understand what this beatitude means. Do you follow me? And so the first word that we're going to look at is the word heart. We've spoken about this before, but heart is the primary uh, focus, the center focus of the gospel, is the issue of the heart. If you read everything that Jesus preaches and teaches on in the gospels, read the gospels and you will see that Christ deals with pretty much everything has to do with the heart. The emphasis is always there. He emphasizes this because he realizes that the Pharisees have got this wrong. That they had focused on the outward side. They wanted to give a good idea of the way they looked and the way they conducted themselves. But Jesus' analysis of their heart is that inward, they are wicked. Inward, they have, they have messed up. They have forgotten the weightier things of God. They, they were more worried about the way they presented themselves and the way people viewed them rather than worrying on our theme this year, that returning to our first love, that loving up, loving in, and loving out. In other words, loving the Lord with all our hearts, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. That they had forgotten the weightier issues, and they've forgotten about this heart. So Jesus emphasizes the heart of the, uh, of the gospel. The, the sense of the gospel is dealing with the issue of the heart. Does that make sense? And so when we talk about heart, what we are not talking about, let's speak about it in a negative first is we're not talking about um, head knowledge. The emphasis here is not blessed are those who are pure in their head. It's the heart, not the head. And so we've got to understand that being pure intellectually is not what we're going for. We're not talking about there's this need to, you have to, uh, he's not emphasizing intellect, he's not emphasizing understanding doctrine, he's not emphasizing this grasping of it. Man, that's important, don't hear me wrong. Super important. We need to be a people that grow in our understanding of the gospel, in understanding of the doctrines. We need to do that. We see this uh, in Hebrews, uh, particularly Hebrews 5 verse 12 and, and 6 verse 1. He says this, the writer of Hebrews uh, writing, uh, says this to the audience that he's speaking to. He says, for though, uh, for though by this time you ought, you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. You, you should have gone further. You should be able to teach people these basic things. But instead, I have to come and tell you again these basic things. And he tells us what some of these basic things are in chapter 6 verse 1. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again the foundations of repentance from dead works and the faith towards God and the instruction of washings and the laying of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgments. It's important. We need to, we need to grow in our understanding and head knowledge. Man, we, we need to do that. But the, the challenge and the danger is that we become so focused on understanding doctrine and understanding that, that we say that knowledge results in faith. Or equates to faith. And that's not necessarily right. 
Just because we understand stuff doesn't mean that it's filtered into our hearts and our, we have a better relationship with God. Does that make sense? Just because you've got a head knowledge doesn't necessarily mean that you are closer to God than when you first began. There are atheists that know the Bible better than we do. But it doesn't mean they know God. And there is this danger, like the Pharisees, we know much, but our hearts have not been changed. It can even be to a point that we uh, study Scripture. Man, we love it. As a theological student, I fell in this trap often. I would study the context. I'd study the Greek. I would look at all the situations and, and be blown away by it, but I would never let it filter from my head to my heart. This is the whole primary thing of um, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on it he meditates day and night. His, his delight is in the law that he, he meditates on it day and night. It's not just a memorizing. It's a grappling. It's a unpacking. It's, it's going, Lord, what are you saying to me here? How does this change my life? How do I know you better out of this? How are you speaking into my situation through your word? And what's the result? He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Why? Because the word is more than just an understanding or something that I have to quickly read, but it's something that I allow the Holy Spirit to challenge me on, work in my heart, and change me and mold me more into the image of Christ. Does that make sense? And so when we talk about heart, we're not just talking about a head knowledge. Head knowledge is important. Don't hear me wrong. But it's more than that. It has to go further, has to seep into our hearts, has to change us. The second thing that we're not talking about here is just an outward appearance or our conduct. We see this with the Pharisees. Some of us might, might like the fact that we don't have to understand doctrine. Uh, maybe you just, man, you don't like to read, uh, don't like to get big heavy books out and try grasp things. That's, that, that's right up your alley for me to say that this morning. But when I say it's, you go, yes, it's about living which is, there is, there is truth to the, both of these. Don't hear me wrong. But it's not just that. The Pharisees got these both right. Head knowledge and outside conduct. Man, there were giants in both of them. Lived far better in the way they carried themselves. But it's, it doesn't stop in just an outward appearance and action in, in religious activities. It's changing of the heart. It's an inward thing, not an outward thing. We need to make sure that we change inwardly, not outwardly. So what do we mean by heart? In, in Scripture, what we see when we talk about heart is it talks about it being the center of who we are. It is um, our very personality. Sometimes we use the word heart like, man, his heart is broken because his girlfriend dumped him. And his heart's broken. I know we all had our hearts broken before and it hurts. It, it's not just an emotional uh, state or an attitude here. We're not talking about that. As we said, we're not talking about intellect. That's what we're talking about either. And it's not just will. Sometimes, man, he gave his whole heart. He, he tried his, his very best. It's not just will. When we talk about hearts, we talk about the entirety of it all. It's our emotions it's our intellect, it's our will, it's our entire being. It's everything that we are. It's everything. 
So it's, it's blessed are the pure, not merely on the surface, not merely intellect, not merely in determination, not merely in just in his attitude. It's all of it. To be pure in the entirety of who we are. And as a result then, when we look at our heart, if the heart is everything and that's, that's where we need to become pure, then really the problem that we have in everything, all our problems stem from the heart. So often we equate the fact that our problems are due to our environment. I've done this often. Where we go, man, if I just got out of my work situation, I got away from those colleagues, I would be less frustrated when I got home every day. If I just got away from the particular friends that I have, then, then if I did that, I would stop doing those silly things. And there's some truth to that. Scripture tells us we must, uh, we must remove ourselves from situations in which we sin. So I'm not saying those things are bad, but if we assume that the issue is the environment, the primary problem is the environment, we can move to greener pastures, we can go everything else, but the problem comes with us. Because ultimately the problem is our hearts. And so we can go to the best environment, but if we haven't dealt with the problem, our hearts, man, the issues are still going to arise. Does that make sense? And so while... Good, remove yourselves out of those environments as unnecessary. You stay away from people that cause us to sin. We are told to flee sin and pursue righteousness. So there's an action in which we need to take. But we need to make sure we deal with the heart. Because no matter where we go, our problems are still going to come with us. We're still going to be sinning. We're still going to be doing those things. So what do we mean by pure? Now it could be... I think quite easily understood. I think the, the first way in which we can understand it is uh, a cleansing, being clean, undefiled, spotless. I think that's quite simple, that we are uh, sinless in that state. That's what we mean by pure. Let's not, let's not try play it down. The purity he's talking about here is a sinless state. It's being sinless. That's what he's talking about, pure. But there's also an a imagery that is used of one that is straight, we're going to see this later on in, in Matthew 6, verses 22. He talks about the good eye and the bad eye, or the healthy eye, some of your translations might say. If you've got the King James Version, it probably gets it the most right. It's just the straight eye. We're going to be tackling that later in a, in a couple of weeks. But um, this has got a similar imagery. It's one of the heart being straight, of being single, single-minded, uh, not hypocrite. Not play-acting. That's what hypocrisy means. It means play-acting. Uh, being one thing one time and being another thing the other time. It is straight. It is single-minded, single-eyed on God. We are for Him, seeking Him, pursuing Him only. That's all that we want. But the problem with our hearts is we want a lot of things. We as Christians, and we sit here this morning, go, man, I want Jesus. There's truth to that. But the problem is, a lot of us in our hearts, well, and may I say, most of us, if not all of us, in our hearts want Christ. But there are other things that we want as well. Hence the fact that we mess up in sin. Because those were desirable in those moments. We wanted them. And to be, and to be single-minded or to be pure means to be purely set on God. And, and this is going to be a struggle for us. It's going to be a struggle for us our whole lives. Paul says this in Romans 7. He says, I do the things that I do not want to do and the things I want to do, I cannot do. I, he just wrestles with this thing going, I want to do what God wants me to do, but I just can't. And what I, I do want to do, I just, I just can't do. And I can't do what I do do. And just, I, I just can't do anything. 
And what is the conclusion? It's Romans 8 verse 1. There's no condemnation in Christ. <laughs> one day, I'm going to be made clean. But there's this wrestling that we have. And striving for a pure heart is striving that, Lord, I want to seek you only. I want you. I desire you only. Man, this is tough. Ultimately, we need to be praying prayers like, like Psalm uh, uh, 86 verse 11. It says, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. He's saying, Lord, help me. Unite me with you. Align my heart with you. Align my heart with the wonder of who you are, that I, I pursue you, that I want you. Unite my heart with you. And daily we have to pray that. Lord, creating me a clean heart, says Psalm of uh, David as well. So ask, Lord, unite me. And the best way maybe to describe this idea of pure is that we need to become like Jesus himself. That's our goal. Because when we think of Christ, man, he was spotless. He was pure. He was the spotless, pure lamb that went and died for us. It's, the, it's the, one of the qualifications, the reasons why Jesus could die on the cross for us was that he was pure, perfect, sinless. Therefore, he could take our, our place on the cross. Therefore, he could take our punishment in which we deserved. And so it's to be like that. But also, a, he was a, a man that was purely aligned with the Father. Did not do anything he, the Father did not tell him to do. Only did what the Father had asked him. He, he wanted only what God wanted. He pursued that only, not other things. Undivided. Solely for the mission of God. And so we are to become like Christ. And if you want to take that further, he was a man that loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he loved his neighbors. He loved himself. He lived that out. And we are to love up, church. We are to love in. And we are to love out. If we are to become pure, we need to start doing that. And the result of this is that we will see God. Is there such a great thing to say that we are to see God? And like every beatitude so far that we've had, there's a now element to it, and there's a future element to it. And so there's a now element. We get to see God now. We were just singing this morning. I, uh, we hear the thunder. We, uh, you know, uh, how great is our God. We're just singing how, how amazing he is. As we stand on lofty mountains, as we, we see the valleys, as we, we see the beauty, we see God in. There's something about, different about a Christian than those who aren't. We stand at the beach, we look and we see, particularly in the mornings, East London, we get good sunrises, and we see that the Christian goes, wow, God. The other non-Christian might be blown away by it, but they go, wow, that's a beautiful sunset. For us, it's, wow, Lord, look how beautiful you're in it. We see God in it. Eyes of faith, we, we also see God in history. We see him in the moving and we see him do things and we see his sovereign hand involved and we say, we can see God moving in that. We can see God in it. We can see God in our own experiences, in our own lives. That's why we say, oh man, I can see the, Lord, the Lord's hand in this. Because we can see him moving. But it's also a sense of a knowledge that he is there. It's, a, it's an enjoyment of his presence. It's, it's knowing that he is with us. That's what we see by now. We see him now in, in the sense that we can experience him in that sense. And so we see this with, uh, in the right of Hebrews, explains this well with uh, Moses. 
Moses, in uh, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 11 that Moses seen him, seen God, who is invisible. Isn't that it? He's invisible. We can't tangibly see him. There's, there's nothing in which we can grasp or hold on. There's no hands or, or legs or feet. But Moses seen him who's invisible. That's us. We see him. We know he's there. We experience it. But that's the now thing. But there's a not yet thing to come. There's a greater thing to come. 1 Corinthians 3.12 says it like this. One day we're going to see God clearly. It says, now we see uh, in, a dim, in a mirror dimly, but then we're going to see face to face. Now we see God and we experience it, but it's like, you know, when you get a real old mirror and you try to look into it and you can be, it's, it's very dim and you can't see, but you can see there's something there. It's blurry, but there's going to be a time where it's going to be like face to face, not in a dim mirror, but face to face in which we are going to see. The joys that we experience now, the, the, the experiences and the peace and the, the, the amazingness that we get to have and the magnitude of our God on this side of the grave are going to fail to compare to the glory that is waiting for us. It's going to be dim. It's going to, this is dim and fails to comparison. We're going to, one day we're going to stand before the majesty. We're going to stand before the king. We're going to see him. It's going to be great. And Martin Lloyd-Jones comments on this and he, he, makes this, he says this. This is surely the most amazing thing that has ever been said to man. That you and I, such as we are, pressed with all the uh, problems and the troubles of this modern world, are going to see him face to face. If we but grasp this, it would revol revolutionize our lives. You and I are meant for the audience chamber of God. You and I are being prepared to enter into the presence of the King of Kings. Do you believe it? Do you know it is as true of you? Do you realize that a day is coming when you are going to see the blessed God face to face? Not as in a glass darkly, but face to face. This is the truth and the hope that we have. That one day we will see him in all his glory. We're going to stand before him. And we're going to enjoy him more than we have ever now. Far greater, far better, with no more pain, no more suffering, no more mourning, no more shame. In bodies that are glorified for the glory of Jesus Christ, we will stand there. Man, it's going to be good. And this is the result of being pure in heart. So how do we get that? Because is there such a greater challenge than saying, let's be perfect. Let's be pure. And for those of you who do not know Jesus and might be seeking this morning, the reality of the, the matter is that we need to be, uh, come like David said, and said, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Make right in me a spirit. Come, Lord, forgive me of my sins. We need to come before God and we need to go beatitude one. We need, you need to realize that there is sinfulness in you and there's nothing absolutely nothing that you can do or in you that makes you right with God. But the reason why that is good is because we realize it's a Savior, as we've said. And if you realize that Jesus is that Savior who has died for you, and you believe that, and you repent from your sins, we said that we, there's a new heart that we are given. Ezekiel puts it like this. He says, it's like a heart of stone is taken out. And we've got a heart of flesh that has come in. The old man is gone. The new man has come, says Corinthians. 
We are new. And we have this ability to be able to come before God because our sin has been taken away and the righteousness of God has been put on us. And so the way God sees us is no longer our sinfulness, but what he sees is the righteousness of Jesus. And as a result, you can come to know him. You can start to see God dimly like us. But there's a promise that you, like us, if you do this, will one day see him face to face in his glory and with all the joy that will come with it, the purpose that comes. There is something waiting for you. But even now, the joy that you will experience now, though dim in comparison, is still far greater than anything else this world has to offer. There's still a satisfaction in him that is far greater than anything else you can seek. But the great promise is, while this might be the greatest thing you will receive on earth, there's something greater to come, the fullness of God. All you have to do is believe, and you will receive that. Isn't that awesome? And for those of us who have this, remember the, the Beatitudes are for those of us who do, not know, who do know Christ. So the challenge here is that we need to become pure in heart. We need to strive to become like Christ. So what do we do? It's a bit of a, a both-and thing here, so I hope you follow me. What do you need to do, church, or what you can do to make yourself holy is pretty much nothing. And what I mean by that is that it is God who does the work in us. It's the Holy Spirit's job, primary role, one of his primary roles, to sanctify us and make us more into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's His job to transform us. And so we can rest in the fact that ultimately it is God who does the work all the way to the end. We see this in Philippians 2 verse 13. It says, For it is God who works in you both uh, to will and to work for His good pleasure. It is God who does the work. And so we rest in that, rest in the fact that we are in the hands of God, the loving hands of God, who is processing us and making us more into the image of Christ, that he dwells within us and is dealing with us and is cleaning us, that he has got the hands of a potter who's taking the clay and is rubbing all those hard spots out, getting all those lumps of clay out of us. Man, it hurts sometimes. And as he manipulates and shapes the bowl, he, he covers it first with gold and then with black and puts us into a fire where we will be refined. And the black falls away and the beautiful pot comes out. This is an imagery Jeremiah uses of God working with us. When this pot comes out, we are going to be refined like gold by his hands. We can trust him. We can trust him. But having said that, that doesn't mean we do not do nothing. He does all the work, but there's work for us to do. Now, this is where you need to follow me. Well, we, he does all the work. He comes and he dwells and works within us. There's sometimes he instructs us to do stuff, which we would have never done if he did not instruct. And he tells us to go and do it. And then we obey and do it. He empowers us to do it. So it's always him working. But there's stuff for us to do. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean we, we can live in the gutters of life. Just living the way we want to and one day stand before God and say, you didn't do your work. No. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
There's a straw him when he comes. Actually, he continues on to say, he says, draw near to God and he will draw uh, near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's stuff that we have to do. We have to try. Pursue him wholeheartedly. Give all that we have. But in knowing as hard as I work, as much as I do everything, and it's still not enough, but it has to be through the power of the Spirit. This is where poor in spirit comes in. I realize that I am sinful. I realize that I am completely dependent on him for any good. But I mourn and change and I want difference. So I repent and try my best. But still being poor in spirit. Still being completely dependent on him for any change that takes place. Does that make sense? This is both ends. He does all the work. And sometimes I partner with him and he gives me the strength to do it. And when we do that, we are shaped more and more into the image of Jesus. This does not mean, church, that we are going to become pure on the side of the grave. Unfortunately not. There will still be sin in us. Struggling with it like Paul all the way until one day we stand before him in heaven where we'll be glorified and our sin will be taken away completely. But what it does mean is that we are molded more into the image of Jesus. And the more we are shaped and the more we are molded into his image, the more we get to see him. The more we understand him. The more that mirror that is dim becomes a little clearer. And we get to experience more of his joy the more we become like Christ. And that's our pursuit. That's what we want this morning. We want Jesus. We want more of him. And if we can have more of him, man, we lay aside all that we have, all that's wrong, so that we can have more of him. That is the great promise that we have for those who are in Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you have graciously come and died for us that we might know you that we might have a relationship with you, and in it there is life. In it there is joy. You are all that we need and all that you want, all that we need and want. So Lord, I pray that you stir up a deep desire in our hearts for more of you. That Lord, that we would want and hunger and thirst for more of Christ. That we would be willing to lay aside all things that hinder us from knowing you so that we might know you more clearly that we might have a relationship with God that is great, that we might see you more clearly. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be uh, working in our lives. We can't do this ourselves. To become pure, to become like Christ is something that we cannot achieve. But we ask for your strength. Would you mold us and shape us daily? Would you make us pure in heart? Would you give us the fruit of your spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Would those be actively growing in us each and every single day? Would we become more like Jesus because we want more of you? We want you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.